Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Michael D'Onofrio is the CEO of Orbus Software, a technology executive, sustainability entrepreneur, and growth investor with over 15 years of global experience. Michael holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and joined Orbis Software as CEO in early 2021 after the acquisition by Silvertree Equity. Michael's mission is to build a sustainable and enduring legacy for the next generation. He believes we are entering a decade of rapid scaling cloud technologies, smart cities and sustainable brands at the scale of an industrial revolution and the speed of a digital transformation. His key interests include the intersection of B2B cloud software, sustainability, real estate, clean energy and impact investing. When not helping customers architect their digital future, you'll find Michael busy spending quality time with his young family and his golden retriever. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Michael D'Onofrio, good afternoon. Welcome to the Extrology podcast. It's great to have you on as our guest and really looking forward to finding out a lot more about uh, what is a fascinating story. But uh, first and foremost, as is customary with all things Extrology, we like to start with the early days and get a sense as to what growing up was like for you. So first question, where did you grow up and therefore what was childhood like for you? Absolutely, Lisa. I grew up in Australia in a place that the locals like to refer to as Bris Vegas. Uh, to the rest <laughs> of the world, it's known as Brisbane, Australia. So I grew up in uh, an Italian immigrant family. So all four of my grandparents uh, immigrated out from Italy after World War II, came to Australia uh, with nothing but the clothes on their back and grew up in a family um, that was really around kind of real estate and construction. So lots of kind of self-employed kind of uh, small-scale entrepreneurship, everything from property development to carpenters, plumbers, and electricians. So that was my sort of uh, early life uh, up to sort of being a teenager. So I guess we we might have a, a somewhat romantic notion here in the UK that therefore life for you was was on a beach as a child. But what were your interests as a child? Where did you typically find yourself, or where we where might we have found you? We definitely went to the beach a lot. So the Gold Coast was less than an hour away. And there's a beautiful beach there called Surfer's Paradise, uh, which is exactly what it says. Um, so that was very much our summer holidays. Uh, I didn't actually leave Australia till I was 18. So all of our holidays were basically at the local beach or kind of driving down to Melbourne. So a combination of that for me, um, I always had a passion for kind of maths and science. So hence kind of my sort of uh, undergraduate study as an engineer and then hanging around in sort of the family business. So starting out when I was 14 years old, kind of cleaning up construction sites and kind of learning the uh, tools of the trade, if that makes sense, from kind of a young age. So, so who did you sort of heroes as a child, post, whether it would be the posters that were on the wall or people that typically you would have looked up to? Who were those heroes? I mean, my biggest hero was my godfather and uncle, uh, whose name's Claude, who kind of, you know, was the property developer on the family. So if you kind of think he developed the properties and then everyone else, my cousins and everyone would kind of be the trades kind of going behind it. So I always gravitated to him as kind of, I guess, one of the more entrepreneurial of our family, kind of taking on a bit more risk 
and sort of doing bigger projects. So he was definitely my hero kind of growing up. Um, and other than, you know, Darth Vader and kind of different forms of Lord of the Rings characters, my other kind of big hero um, at the time, who I actually got to meet a bit later in my career, was actually uh, the founder of Tesla, who is not Elon Musk, but a guy named J.B. Straubel. So J.B. kind of founded Tesla, originally pitching it as kind of an air delivery kind of company. I think one day he met Elon and said, why don't we do some cars? But, you know, uh, one of my heroes kind of growing up. So Tesla was founded about the same time as Orbis, almost kind of 20 years ago when I was um, when I was at university. How did you get to meet him? I met him at a conference, actually, when I was a technology investor. So I went to Houston and he keynoted a conference uh, by Daniel Jurgen. So the IHS conference, which is a big conference on kind of energy in Houston. And he keynoted it alongside kind of, you know, ministers of kind of large petroleum producing companies. The keynote was uh, the founder of Tesla and kind of, you know, part of the mission of how do you accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy and what that meant. And it hasn't changed over time, so whether it was solar panels or electric vehicles or kind of the different aspects. The mission was kind of the same and the journey, how they got there. So very inspirational story for me and, and actually led me to kind of be a part of an entrepreneurial team in this space myself. I've heard it said, I digress a little bit from it, but I've heard it said on many an occasion that, you know, you should never meet your heroes, you know, that, that sort of, but it sounds as though from what you're saying, meeting yours was a source of inspiration. Is that fair? And if so, therefore, what might have you gained from, from the experience? Uh, I got a selfie out of it, which is actually <laughs> pretty cool uh, as a bit of a takeaway. Really the chance to kind of, to kind of listen to it from the ground up. You know, I appreciate this was kind of a, a thousand person kind of conference but I was the first person after afterwards to kind of talk to JP, um, which was really cool. And then, you know, was in was an entrepreneurial team uh, a few years later building electric vehicle charging business. So it was kind of it did kind of uh, influence me on that side. I guess the other thing was at business school, I met lots of people that I thought were my heroes, you know, hedge fund managers and kind of investment bankers and kind of, you know, people that I, at the time I was kind of aspiring to be. And actually meeting people, I realized how, how different I was actually to them. And, you know, I grew up thinking about property development, you know, went into private equity thinking about, in my mind, I was doing property development, but with businesses. And now kind of, you know, whether it's a, as an entrepreneurial member of a team or a board member or being a CEO, I'm still in my head doing property development, but with businesses um, when I'm building and scaling things. So let's look at that. You talk a bit about that um that early career. I mean, you, you studied engineering and a, and a master's in project management, as I understand, at Queensland University of Technology before embarking on a career. Uh, and I could draw some assumptions as to where the inspiration may have heard from, your, from your family circumstances have come from with the likes of Len Lease, McDonald Dowell, as a, and then also as a volunteer with Engineers Without Borders, but then made the switch to Boston Consulting Group. What, what, was, the, what was behind the switch into consulting, having originally mm. grown up in infrastructure projects, that, things of that sort of nature. Well, it's really interesting. So, so clearly, I kind of grew up in that, that environment where we were building things, right? So I actually applied to university in my first year, a Bachelor of Engineering, but I studied Infomechatronic Engineering, which at the time I thought was fascinating because you were designing robots effectively. I was just going to say, for the, for the people like the ill-educated like me, what, what is that? <laughs> so, so Infomechatronic Engineering is the intersection of mechanical electrical and software engineering in a single discipline. So, so designing robots is kind of a good construct of it, right? You need the robot to move, you need to power the robot, and the robot needs to be intelligent. 
So um, an engineer sort of sitting at the intersection of that is really kind of the systems engineer that kind of brings it together. So I, I started off with that. It was quite sophisticated. <laughs> um, I actually worked to work in a coal-fired power station and I found out I was more interested in how did they build this power station than actually running it and kind of the systems. So I, I switched switched to civil and construction engineering, kind of, you can, you can probably tell the theme there. And then as I went through that, I kind of, you know, civil engineering is about designing buildings and structures and things like that. I was like, okay, interested in the design, but then I was more interested in the construction engineering, which is about how do you actually bring this together? So I kind of, even during my engineering degree and, and my dean of engineering at the time said, Michael, you're not going to be an engineer when you grow up. When I, when I got my kind of university medal and I was like, but I just spent four years studying this. He's like, no, 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 no. You're not going in that direction. So he said, do a master's degree in project management, right? That's the first step. You kind of get like one level above all the engineering and you figure out how all the pieces come together. And so, and when I was a, a project, uh, doing my master's degree in project management, I was working at Boulderstone, which became part of Lendlease. And, you know, again, I was sitting in the meetings, our project monthly review meetings, and I was more interested in the ING guy who was financing it than kind of everything else. So I kept kind of like meeting people throughout my career early stage. And I was like, well, that's fascinating. What do you do? And I kept sort of doing that. So, you know, work for, work for Lendlease uh, or subsidiary of Lendlease and then McConnell Dow. That was kind of, you know, going from, hey, designing buildings to let's go mobilize for this big project in Papua New Guinea, which was like a third of the GDP of the country, which was like a bit of a formative experience. And then sort of sitting in the jungle uh, in Papua New Guinea, um, you know, Dean of Engineering kind of called me again. Have you said, he said, have you applied to anything yet? And I said, no, I'm sitting in the jungle in Papua New Guinea. You know, we're building an airfield that's going to land Antonovs, uh, which is the biggest plane in the world. And he said, have you heard of McKinsey, BCG and Booz? I said, not a clue what you're talking about. So he said, when you come back for kind of, you know, in two weeks time, I want you to fly to Sydney. I want you to apply to all these companies. So I did and I kind of got all these interviews and I turned up, not a clue, right? In my head, I was still like doing property development. And I met all these companies and then I got all these offers and I chose BCG, which was kind of my first foray into kind of, you know, formal business training, if I take it that way. Because surprisingly in Australia, they did not have a resources, energy and infrastructure practice, which is like the biggest industry in Australia, whereas all the others did. So I was like, this is a bit of an entrepreneurial opportunity. And then secondly, the logo was green. And I was really kind of getting passionate about kind of sustainability at the time. So I had to, I had to choose based on some criteria. And those are my two criteria, appreciating that I was like 23 at the time. And I thought I was going to like build a new business for BCG, which was pretty aspirational. But yeah, was was part of that during my two year journey and helped to um, uh, set up uh, another office in BCG actually in Australia in Perth um, as part of that experience. What do you think you learned from that experience? I learned how to make PowerPoint slides. That was probably the first skill that I learned, and how to tell a story. Actually, the, the storytelling was very powerful. I had the privilege of working with a few clients where I ended up sort of being seconded to kind of work for kind of really senior executives. Um, because I was sort of helping to build the practice in addition to kind of you know, learning how to be a consultant. Um, so I had a few good experiences, both kind of in what I knew. So, you know, helped a, a large Australian resources company with a $40 billion capital expenditure program, which was kind of for me just a, a much larger version of what I'd been doing previously. And then also got to work, for, you know, in brand new areas like um, helping the government think about what solar projects to fund through to, you know, turning around banks um, and sort of, you know, environmental companies. So for me, it was really a chance to broaden my skills. And, and at the time, I really wanted to, to do an MBA. 
So I kind of saw this as a let's learn about business. And I'd never met anyone who'd really done an MBA. Most of the partners who had done MBAs, and they kind of told me about what it actually means to do an MBA. I was going to say, where where did the inspiration for the MBA stem from? But was that the experience coming from those with whom you're working for within within BCG? Yeah, they gave me, I think they challenged me to kind of, if you're going to do an MBA, apply to these big international schools which again, I'd never left Australia, right? Until I was kind of, you know, in my almost, uh, yeah, until I was 18. So I, I'd never been to America, right? I'd never kind of done these things. And they challenged me. They were like, you know, Michael, you know, we'll, we'll you know, we can, we can sponsor you, but you should apply to these schools. And, and they were schools that I'd heard of, right? So like Harvard and Stanford and Oxford and London Business School, but I'd never been to any of them. I didn't know anyone from them. But it was really good to sort of talk to some of the alumni and have that opportunity over a few years and kind of learn what, you know, there is differences between the schools of kind of which journey and which community you want to build. And they each have different strengths in terms of their community. But in my mind, I was just going from engineering to project management to MBA. I was I kept moving like up the scale, if that makes sense, of kind of, you know, if you're building a building, there's all the project management, how does it come together? Then there's how is it financed, who's investing in it, who's going to be the tenant. And kind of so I kind of had that in my head. And I totally went to my MBA thinking I wanted to be a real estate investor. And that was kind of, you know, what I wrote in my MBA application. Actually, I wanted to either run BHP or be a real estate investor. And BHP was the biggest company in Australia at the time. So what was behind the transition to private equity? Why not run BHP or be a a real estate investor? So I tried, I applied for so many internships to be a real estate investor, and I got rejected from all of them. So that was, you know, a bit of a downer. I applied uh, and met um, a couple of, of Harvard alumni who worked at HG, which is Europe's biggest technology investor. <laughs> I still remember saying to them, do you do property development, but with businesses here? And they kind of laughed and they said, why don't you come do an internship, right? An internship in private equity in technology investing, and also in Europe, which were three brand new things to me. And I said, that'd be great. Can I do half in the renewable energy team? Because I was really fascinated by that. And then half in the tech team. So I got a, got a chance to do that internship, move across to London for 10 weeks. And then, um, yeah, they said, why would you, would you like to come back? And I said, yes, I'd really love to join the renewable energy team. There's, there's no slots, but would you like to join the tech team? Because it's a brand new fund. It's very entrepreneurial. And, you know, you may not have a clue what you're talking about, but we'll quickly train you on what technology is. It's interesting that I think that, you know, the diversity of experiences that you'd enjoyed, some of which clearly conscious decisions, but oftentimes also an element of right place, right time, right conversations, right network, right people. But you've, you've clearly done a lot of, at a rel- respectfully, relatively earlier stage in your career, you've experienced a lot of differing things. What advice might you give anyone who who similarly might be thinking of making that change across to new sectors? Because I think that's often a, can be a challenge mm. for people if you've got some very specific, can be a great asset as well, but some very specific industry experience you would then want subsequently to experience new things can oftentimes be a difficult transition to make. What advice might you give anyone thinking of making that kind of move? Mm. So one thing I've always tried to do is kind of change one or two things at a time. So it may seem like I was changing lots of things, but I still had my reference point of, you know, building and transforming things when I was becoming an investor. So, you know, 
probably be a little bit too much of an active kind of hands-on investor. You know, I'd meet management teams and want to kind of jump over the table and kind of join them as opposed to investing in them. That was also a learning experience. So change one or two things, but also as early as you can, and it can change. It probably changes change for me every five years or so. Try writing down your mission or your purpose or what you're trying to do. So, so mine hasn't changed since I graduated from Harvard. It's, it's on the front line of my LinkedIn, which is to build a sustainable and enduring legacy for the next generation. And every time I, I make a decision, whether it's to become an executive or join an entrepreneurial team um, or invest in something, I always test whether it's going to further my mission, which is, you know, the, the further you get through career, the more kind of experience you have, your mission can become bigger and bigger. But, you know, I spent 13 weeks writing that one sentence while at Harvard. And I wish I'd done that a lot earlier. I probably wouldn't have known, right, what to write. But even trying to do that and just putting it in your top drawer. And when you have a decision around, you know, a career change or the chance to sort of start a new project, kind of just look at it and be like, does this kind of broadly align, right? Can I even convince myself that this is kind of a step along the journey, and, you know, will it teach me a new skill? Will it build a network? Will it, you know, what will, what will it create towards that mission, right? Which is, is hopefully for me a 20, 30, 40, 50 year kind of project that I'm currently embarking on. You mentioned there's been a, an underlying theme, I guess, if I can use that phrase of, of, of renewables. It's clearly a big, but where had that stemmed from initially? It's not actually renewables. It's sustainable technologies. And what happened first in the transition to sustainable technologies was renewables. So building lots of solar and wind farms, right? Because it was kind of doable, understandable, kind of investable. So when I wanted to be, you know, in sustainable technologies and, and, you know, in 2012, 2013, in practice, a lot of what that meant was go into renewable energy, right? Be a developer or an investor or an executive, right? Now, almost a decade later, it means a whole plethora of different things. But sort of, I made my first kind of commitment to sustainability in 2005, actually, as a first year engineer. We did this class, which was really kind of a soft class around kind of sustainability in the built environment. I remember all my friends being like, this is, you know, let's go back to kind of dynamics and structures and things like that. But actually, it resonated with me. And I was like, this is something that, you know, we, ha- we have to do, right? I didn't have, you know, planetary kind of views of it at the time. But I was like, fundamentally, at the time, I was like, we have to do this and it'll make the real estate more valuable. That's what I was thinking in my head, right? It has to be both profit and purpose and impact at the same time, right? It's not a charity. But, you know, n- now we call this thing like sustainable investing or impact investing, right? It's now kind of coined it's a term. But at the time, I was just like, you know, this is in my world, right? Purpose, profit, people, planet, all at the same time. And if you bring those four Ps together, you create the fifth P, which is potential for explosive growth. One of the frameworks I've developed over my career that I, again, I use to kind of make decisions. And I I use that in Orbis in my current CEO role, right? The theme of our upcoming global event is those five Ps, because I think we've got all the four. Therefore, we should be able to do the five. So was it a conscious decision? You've explained it as, as I, I don't wish to put words in your mouth, but I guess HG steering you down the route of, well, renewables, as I think they defined it as a sector, wasn't available, technology is, um, and it's entrepreneurial. And it's what was the appeal of that move into technology with HG? 
effectively, they were two different funds, and I really wanted to combine them and kind of do 50-50. <laughs> Obviously, that doesn't quite work in a private equity firm. You've got to choose which one. But that's what I, you know, I, I wanted to do in my head, if that makes sense. So while I was a member of the tech team, I still used to hang out with the renewables team a lot. <laughs> and um, so I think my decisions became more conscious over time. I think at that point in my career, I was still in sort of exploration and discovery phase, which I think, you know, broadly, I see kind of your 20s as that kind of activity. And then you kind of, you know, you approach 30s, maybe you have your first child or you kind of settle down. I think for me, that was kind of uh, when I had my first child at business school. And, you know, that's where I kind of wrote down that mission, right? So it was a it was a defining moment for me. Um, but I didn't really know what I'd written down at the time. I thought it was just a paper, right? But it actually became something that I looked at every year. So decisions became more conscious over time. The more information I got, the more kind of my networks expanded. And, I, you know, I look back and I'm, I'm telling you a very clear story, right? Obviously, it was a lot more chaotic along the way. So you joined or was software CEO in 2021, as I understand. Why? What was the appeal of Orbis from your perspective? Yeah, so I've been CEO of Orbis for about a year now. It was a business that was, you know, being transitioned from a founder who'd run the business to sort of a private equity, so sort of first-time private equity ownership. The business was in the space of digital transformation, which I'd had a little bit of as an underlying theme throughout my career. But fundamentally, you know, the business provides software to enterprises to drive the digital transformation journeys. And that can mean cloud transformation. It can mean building new products. It can mean all sorts of different things. So I kind of saw almost like a rough cut of a business that was well past startup phase and sort of entering scale-up phase. And the mandate to sort of become a CEO was global expansion, new technologies, innovation. It was a very growth-minded mandate. So, so that's what really attracted it to me. Um, it was also headquartered in London with offices in New York and Sydney, which were broadly the three places I'd lived in my life. And I figured maybe once COVID's over, I may be able to kind of work from those three locations and kind of build our business globally. So yeah, there was a personal attraction to kind of that area. But it also meant that my, my networks were also centered in those locations, which was also helpful as I've been expanding my executive team and board members, etc. So yeah, what I really saw... You know, I was thinking about, you know, do I want to be a founder and kind of build something from scratch? And then, you know, one of, my, one of my sort of former board members that I'd worked with sort of said, hey, maybe this one, you know, you're kind of starting with 150 people, right, as opposed to one. Maybe that's kind of more conducive to your skills to grow and transform that, which I think was an excellent insight. Uh, and I very much enjoyed the last year and with many more to come. And, and how have you seen COVID-19 impact digital transformation. I was, I, um, I think I'm right in saying it was um, Shopify's COO, Harvey Finkelstein, who referenced that talking back in 2020, clearly specific to retail, but nonetheless, that the retail of 2030 had become the retail of 2020. And I think that that's true for an awful lot of businesses who that for many a year understood that they needed to engage in digital transformation, but that the impact of COVID-19 and the impact on consumer behavior, on, on business interaction, need all of a sudden became must. And how much of, a, of an impact do you think, therefore, you've seen COVID have on that digital transformation? Yeah, it was definitely a concept. And people used to say sort of two or three years ago, I remember, 
oh, you know, we're 10% through our digital transformation or we're 20% through our digital transformation. But everyone sort of described it as we were about at that stage. And then it's clearly gone from like 20 to 50, 80% kind of in, in two years. Digital transformation can mean lots of different things. It, it, it is a, a very broadly used term, right? I mean, digital transformation for some companies is making their first mobile app, right? Others, it's taking mainframes from 40 years ago and putting them on the Azure cloud, right, at scale. So like it can mean many different things, but it's fundamentally the premise that businesses that are more digital and tech-enabled tend to have the competitive advantage. And therefore, you know, the faster we can get there internally in terms of our products externally with customers, in terms of providing more clarity, agility, resilience, and sustainability to kind of our operations, that's kind of the cars framework. It's one thing we talk about at Orbis, right? In terms of, you know, if you can provide those things, you can go much faster. You can accelerate your digital future. And I'm, I'm using sort of language there, but that's the kind of language where, you know, if you were talking about it two or three years ago, people would have been like, yeah, that's important. But during COVID, it, it was the boards just mandated me as the, the CIO or the CTO or the chief digital officer became a role, actually. And, you know, that their mandate, especially the chief digital officers, was change the business literally transform us and we'll give you 50% of the technology budget. The other 50% will run it. And like, you know, so you literally had new executives in large enterprises with billions to be able to literally transform the fundamental of their their companies and their, their industries. And I'm talking about it at a strategic level, right? We all went through the experience personally of working from home and kind of, I now have, you know, laptop and iPad and my Apple Watch and <laughs> everything kind of talks to me, right? And wherever I am, doesn't matter if I'm in New York, London, or kind of where, anywhere. So we all had the personal experience, but for, for large enterprises, for governments, it became kind of a you know, mission critical, act. it still is, and it became a mission critical activity, Right. And, you know, we're a fast-growing software business, but this is what Microsoft and ServiceNow and all the big companies sort of talk about. It's kind of front page on their websites now. So it's definitely a space with lots of tailwind, but I think it's also unlocked opportunity going forward, right? There's, there's, there's a long way to go in terms of, you know, completing your digital transformation. And I'm not talking about a new tech startup. I'm talking about banks and utilities and pharma companies who, you know, have a lot more to do physically with regulatory aspects, et cetera, et cetera, to truly be digital enterprises. Are there any particular developments from a digital perspective that you're really excited by? I think one thing that's kind of, you know, passionate for me is that intersection of digital and sustainability. Mm-hmm. So we used to think of sustainability as like, oh yeah, that's renewable energy or making some good consumer product decisions. But actually, Things being more digital and sustainable means you can move much faster. And often you can do things that, for example, just need software. You need much less hardware and kind of fuel and things to kind of undertake projects. Um, So this kind of intersection of digital and sustainability is one thing I'm very excited about. One thing that it's also created, this kind of accelerated digital transformation, is cybersecurity has become sort of a board level topic now, right? You've got people working from home and we're going to take everything that was previously locked up in data centers, and we're going to put it in the cloud. And, you know, cybersecurity has become sort of a huge topic now. Um, we see the public attacks, but when you speak to CISOs, so chief information security officers, another role that 10 years broadly didn't exist in businesses, right? Again, they have huge budgets to sort of, you know, increase the resilience of their operations. 
And they're still trying to find a lot of the technologies to even figure out how to do it, to be very honest. And then the last one for me, I don't like the word artificial intelligence because I, I think that's quite a while away, but using machine learning techniques, um, which is a much more practical way to describe what you're doing um, in automating things. So the more you can do that, a big thing that it unlocks is kind of the human talent in your organization to be able to work on more complex projects when you can automate the, the lower level sort of tasks of the organization it means people can work on strategic and innovation topics. So, so yeah, I guess the intersection of digital transformation and sustainability, sort of cyber and machine learning. I'm not going to talk about blockchain and Web3. I don't understand that stuff. But these are like real things now in 2022, those other three that, you know, are really hitting the ground and gaining a lot of traction. Coming back to your own career, you've you're enjoying a, an element of portfolio from an advisory board perspective and a non-exec perspective. What advice would you give any executive? Because the demands on time are, you know, you talk about some of the exciting things, the number of numerous exciting things that, that Orbis are engaged with. It's, it's a big pull on your time. But what do you feel, what advice would you give any executive out there looking to develop a portfolio career or broaden their expertise? What advice would you give them? How would they go about it? I was actually speaking to someone today about this who is a exec looking for their first portfolio role. I would say I would say start with one. And the first one doesn't need to be joining a board or, or a formal advisory board, right? It can be, hey, let me make a small investment and help out an entrepreneur, right? In my evenings and weekends. So that's how I sort of started with it. And then once you have one and you kind of then you have two. And then I think, you know, there, there is a maximum when you're kind of, especially if you're kind of CEO, right? So you can probably have three. Everything else needs to be very informal and very ad hoc, right? But those roles reinforce each other, right? Because, you know, as a CEO, I also have a board and I also have established an advisory board for Orbis, right? But I know because I'm an advisory board member at GridServe, what roughly that means, and I'm a board member for a business in Scotland that's sort of, you know, scaling up, supporting a young entrepreneur um, who's not young, we're similar age, actually. But, you know, an earlier stage entrepreneur kind of building um, his business, right? And so, you know, I'm a board member there. But it also means that when I speak to my board, I have a better appreciation of what they are thinking about, right? Especially as a non-executive, right? You don't know what's happening every day. So, so it also helps you in your executive role how do you communicate to a board? What is the role of an advisory board? What's actually, you know, I also have just mentors, CEO mentors that I've developed over the last decade. And then now more people are coming to me just being like, can you be my CEO mentor? Which means I buy you dinner once a quarter, right? And I often pay for it, <laughs> but like, you know, but just because of my principles. But, you know, it could be, you know, people kind of helped you kind of along that journey and you start to play it back. And then, you know, at some point in your career, Maybe you become more pure portfolio, but, you know, it's not sort of a hard switch. You've kind of been building it up. You've been learning. You've been using it to reinforce your executive roles throughout the time. So I think it's a good idea, but I would say start with one. And you don't have to actually join the board to start with. Just just advise someone or coach someone. That's a good place to start. So how do you balance your time with the the non-exec responsibilities, the executive responsibilities you enjoy? You mentioned you're a family man. How, how do you balance your time? I'm quite structured of how I spend my executive time in a week and my portfolio roles at the same time. So 
So some weeks I know, and I will commit to a hundred hour week because I know that that's required or, you know, there's several things happening that come together and mission critical nature to it. But otherwise than that, I do think you need a sustainable 40, 50 hour week. So I set that time. I will turn off my Microsoft Teams for days on the weekend, right? I log off at kind of 6 p.m. on Friday, turn up at 9 a.m. on Monday. Sometimes you need to do that. I have small children. You know, my wife uh, is a Pilates instructor in her own kind of entrepreneurial journey. You know, your friends, your family, right? If I go back to my mission, right, to build a sustainable and enduring legacy for the next generation, can't burn yourself out with a role that's just right in front of you. I think the other way to sort of say it, which I think is really important, is relationships are almost always more important than tasks than projects. And that's coming from a project manager and someone's very structured. I kind of had to learn that at some point in time, right? You can always make another spreadsheet, do another phone call. It's not a challenge, right? But doing it as like sustainable execution for, for years and hopefully decades, right? That's a really important topic. Because when I say sustainability, I don't just mean an environmental decision, right? Sustainable business decisions are good long-term decisions. That's what they are fundamentally, right? And there's there's many different dimensions to those. But when I talk about sustainable business or sustainable investing, I'm just talking about good business, right? That's that's what I learned in my MBA. What do you hope to achieve with Orbis? Um, so we're one year into kind of the transformation as a business, a very fast growing sort of technology business. So, you know, our cloud product grew over 700% last year. I think this is a really good candidate for the UK tech industry to do an IPO on the London Stock Exchange. And being an investor and kind of being on many different sides, the kind of the, the IPO uh, and however you get there, you can do direct listings or different. It's kind of gone a bit out of fashion. You can keep just raising capital from VCs for kind of, you know, Series X kind of get up to there. But I actually think it's important for the UTK tech industry, and I, and I speak to my sort of my chairman about this, who thinks similar, that doing an IPO of a global tech business based in London, right, whether it's a unicorn or not, is something that's kind of missing and actually giving the chance for, for everyone to sort of own or be an owner, be a shareholder in these kind of businesses is actually really important to kind of distribute the kind of value creation. So yeah, that's what we're kind of working towards here at Orbis. Maybe that'll be next year, maybe the best sort of the year after, but we've got some sort of very clear targets. So, you know, one day we'll see, maybe sort of, you know, getting to ring, ring the bell at the kind of London Stock Exchange and say, here's, you know, the UK's next tech unicorn. That'd be quite fun. What have been the three most important things you've learned as a result of the businesses you've grown to date? The first one is people is most critical. I know people say it, but, you know, I got offered a CEO role kind of many years ago and I said no because I had young children and I didn't, didn't want, I wasn't ready to be a CEO at that point in time. But, you know, in the last year, I've, I've doubled the size of my executive team and kind of everyone's in place. And it's really nice now to be sort of, you know, the conductor of the orchestra rather than trying to play all the instruments at the same time. So, you know, the power of people and, and surrounding yourself with the people along your journey, right? Take a 360 view of it, really important. And it, it's, it's fundamental to also having a sustainable life. I think that's kind of critical. The second thing is make really practical decisions. So you can be aspirational in where you're going, absolutely. But I think 
some of the things I've made sort of, you know, errors earlier is kind of taking too many steps at once. Whereas actually understand where you're going, right? This year, next year, five years, but then make a practical step towards there, like daily basis, right? I think that's actually quite important. You know, you can step maybe one step, but don't step too many, actually, because then you don't have the the, the platform, the infrastructure around you to kind of keep it up. And it's it's not a sustainable decision to kind of jump too many steps at once. And then the third one, I think, think global, right? So you may be building a business or doing you know any sort of venture, whether it's a social venture or for profit, right? You may be starting in a in the garage, right? Or at your parents' house or kind of somewhere, right? And it doesn't mean you should go global on day one, but still think about, I'm building a business that has the potential to sort of scale globally, right? In my mind, right? Doing my first real estate investment, right? Real estate is a very local activity for most people, right? You know, if you maybe want to, you know, maybe kind of buy your family home and maybe kind of buy another property when you're kind of, you know, further in your life, right? You're not going to go buy it in another country unless it's a holiday home. You'll probably buy an investment kind of close to home. So it's a very local thing. But, you know, in my mind, everything I do, I'm like, but imagine if this was global, right? In tech businesses, it's easier. You know, Orbis, we operate in over 50 countries and we can do that as a kind of digitally native business. But no matter what industry you're in, right, think about it. And it may be 5, 10, 20 years. But if you make you know, a whole series of decisions over a multi-year period, suddenly you actually realize, I- I'm, actually, I'm actually ready to kind of go global. or I'm ready to enter the next city, if that's kind of your sort of topic, right? So if you make all those scalable sort of small decisions along the way, there's this kind of snowball effect. And after a while, you kind of look back and you're like, actually, I've got a pretty big snowball right now. So let's see where I can take this. How about the world of the, the workplace itself? I mean, I think it's been really interesting to note that quite and, and organisations wrestling it with it now. As in the UK, certainly we we're witnessing a return to work, and and that's that's looking different to many different organisations. But how do you see the workplace of the future evolving? Organisations wrestling with hybrid models, how they're utilising workspace. But how do how do you see the workplace of the future evolving? I think every business leader is kind of struggling with this one right now, Lee. Although I do have to challenge you, we're not returning to work. We've been working all the way through. Uh, We're returning to the office. Yes, better. Is actually what we're doing. So whether it's an office or whether it, you're returning to more of a a physical location. And in practice, it's it's a hybrid outcome, I think, for for at least everyone right now (laughs) that I can understand. I've read about sort of a few quite extreme CEOs who said everyone must be back in the office. And they've normally had to retract those statements pretty quickly. It doesn't matter what large kind of international well-known Goldman Sachs bank you are, right? You're going to have to work with your teams to kind of find that hybrid culture. So, I mean, I'm calling you from my home office right now. I have a policy of Mondays working from home because I look after my kids on Monday evening. And, you know, that's, that's not going to change unless I'm, unless I'm in another country. So I think that's quite important. I think, you know, I think everyone's sort of finding where the kind of natural point is. You know, at Orbis, we're two to three days at work. Uh, at work, I said what you just said. <laughs> two to three days in the Freudian office slip. and two to three days at home. But some of our staff, are, you know, now we recruit 100% remotely, right? So for staff in the US, right, I have staff in Seattle, right? And our headquarters in New York, they're not going to come in two, three days a week. They may come in once a month. And then actually, I think the really important point is 
when you're together, right, with your team or in person, really use that time, right? That's where innovation can flourish. That's where you have those kind of conversations at the water cooler, if you still have a water cooler, or in the kitchen, right? Which is, I think, what we all missed from kind of not having that in-person human interaction. So, you know, I, I have a policy. I try to stick to it. When I go into the office, especially on Thursdays, I try not to schedule any meetings. Or if I'm scheduling a meeting, it's an in-person coffee with someone. Normally means I'm buzzing by the end of the day because I've had about 10 coffees. But like, you know, don't schedule calls with US Australia on the day that you're really in person in your headquarters as a CEO. Um, Never perfect, but, you know, having those principles and kind of structuring your time that way. I think it's even like it's clearly more effective than kind of what we used to do. I actually did my first trip to the US for two days a few weeks ago. And I'll be honest, right? You know, my muscles don't remember doing that. So, you know, last time I went for kind of a week at a time and, you know, I'm kind of working properly right in New York. And, you know, I flew to Florida for two days and came back. I almost need to take a day off. I used to be able to do this fine. But one, I'm exhausted. And two, why do we even do this anymore? Right. The stories of my friends being like, oh, I just dropped over from London to San Francisco and back in the last 24 hours. I just can't imagine someone doing that now. Are you nuts? Right. So sorry. (laughs) But like, you know, it's clearly changed permanent habits. But I really think when you do get that in-person time where you have breakfast with someone or a dinner, right, it's like super valuable. I find now you kind of cut through all the chaos and you just get to the really meaningful conversations, which is really nice. You mentioned at the start of our conversation around the influence that I think it was your godfather you mentioned had had uh, in your your early life. But who's been the greatest influence on your career and why? On my career? I would say... Probably the biggest influence was the person that hired me out of business school. So his name is Matthew Brockman, who's one of the managing partners of HG. And he very politely, when I, for my two years at HG, allowed me to sit next to him for two years. So I sat between the managing partner and the senior partner, which was a very privileged position. I don't know if it was intentional. But you know, while I was sitting there building models and kind of PowerPoints, they were speaking to each other over my head if that makes sense, or kind of having chats and, you know, it wasn't intentionally listening, but like in my head, I was building an Excel model and I was like absorbing how you run like a, you know, a a multi-billion dollar private equity firm or ultimately like technology holding company. So yeah, Matthew and Nick were kind of pretty big influences on me. I guess the other big influence was the Dean of Engineering, who still calls me up kind of once a year. And he said, so, you know, you weren't going to be an engineer, and then, you know, you're going to be a consultant. And then, and then, you know, that wasn't kind of right. And you became an investor, then kind of an entrepreneur, and then kind of, you know, an executive. So, you know, he calls me up and he says, what's next? And when he called me up a few weeks ago, I said, I'd just like to do everything the same, actually, for another year. That would be really nice. I don't think I'm ready for a what next right now. And he said, like, you know, Michael, you're growing up. Well done. <laughs> like you've become, a, become an executive. You've kind of found something that, you know, that I have done other things, but where you just want to do a sustained execution and, and truly build something that is, you know, in, in three years' time, very different to what it looks like today. And I think in, in my mind, right, I'm still doing property development with businesses, but I'm also an, an investor, an entrepreneur, an executive, all in, all in the same role which I think is um, 
is a really fascinating experience as a as a first time CEO. One of the questions I'm always interested to understand is to is to what drives you, and arguably alongside that, what does success mean to you? But you've you've talked about that that statement that you wrote at uh, at Harvard, and that sort of enduring, sustainable legacy, if you like, that you're looking to fulfil. Is is that a fair assumption or better question? What does drive you? What, what does success mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, when I wrote it, I had just become a father, so. It, in my mind, when I wrote it, it meant be a good father at the time. And that, that is still kind of the core tenant today, right? Good husband, good father, good son, good brother. Not perfect in all of them, uh, but, you know, always working towards being better. So, so that's what it meant kind of when I wrote it. It's still kind of the core tenant. And as I have, you know, like I said, a bigger network, bigger resources, I just scale that over time. But I'm I'm adding things to a core, and the core is not changing. So, so away from the office, you meant a young family takes up an awful lot of time. But how do you unwind and relax? Do you unwind and relax? Yeah, no, absolutely. I like driving my electric car. My electric car is four years old now, so I'm getting a new one next month. So I'm very excited about that electric car. I think you know it kind of embodies embodies a lot of things to me. Sort of an electric car, so. Well, my godfather was in the property business. My father was in automotive for 40 years. So sort of, you know, that's kind of one thing that I kind of love doing. Yes, it accelerates also quite fast. So in a very safe way, you can accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy by convincing everyone else that they should buy an electric car. So that's an important thing. Um, it's nice to be traveling again. So we're going in our first international family holiday kind of coming up to uh, Istanbul, or as, you know, as an Italian, I'm going to try to explain to as my kids as this is the Eastern Roman Empire and kind of explain to them kind of history using that theme for a week. And we'll see how far we get with my nine-year-old and four-year-old. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's nice to go traveling again as a family uh, beyond where we live in the English countryside. I think those two pieces, and then also, you know, I, I guess... I have my kind of formal uh, non-executive roles, but I'm more and more kind of, you know, helping young entrepreneurs at that intersection of, you know, technology, sustainability and the built environment. I used to say real estate, but now I say the built environment because I think we have bigger problems in addition to buildings to kind of address, whether it's transport or industry or the energy that we use. So yeah, I really love it when entrepreneurs kind of reach out to me. I get I get referred a lot from my network now, kind of people know that's my space. Um, and helping people, right? Whether it's, you know, a little bit of capital, and then you know, that's often me asking my friends saying, this is a really interesting one, right? We should kind of help this entrepreneur who's got a 10-page PowerPoint slide kind of build something. And, you know, if we can all contribute one thing and maybe a little bit of cash, that's a good, you know, good way to start. Um, just like, you know, many of us have kind of had different versions of that throughout our lives. So getting a chance to do that. And then, I also, you know, I'm kind of also kind of giving back to a lot of the institutions I've been a part of that have helped shape me, right? Whether that is early on now in our kind of more family business or whether that's BCG or Harvard or HG. So getting a chance to kind of give back to those, you know, helping BCG with their sustainability initiatives, as I give an example, right? You know, don't, don't need to talk about it too much, but it's, it's nice to help an institution that helps shape you help shape the future of that one at the same time. Are you a reader? And and if so, what are you reading currently? I read so much for work that I don't currently read too much. 
the current book that I'm reading was given to me by one of my advisory board members. It's a book called Zone to Win, which is by Jeffrey A. Moore, who also wrote Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado. So it's a new book about organizing to compete in an age of disruption. And it talks about one of the key tenets that I'm learning from this one is you can only do one transformation or activity at a time because it really requires you to kind of commit the organization to it, especially as, as sort of if you're in the CEO role. So you know, even, even gigantic organizations can only really transform one thing at a time while they make other things incrementally better and kind of keep the lights on. You know, if you think about, I take an example, right? You think about the big energy companies, right? Like Total and Shell, right? You know, they're, they're trying to become cleaner energy companies at least. And that's requiring, you know, transformation of people, capital, huge amounts, right? And they started off just doing renewable energy, just like I kind of discovered 10 years ago, right? But now they're kind of going beyond it into plastic and biofuels and all these other kind of areas where now you can go into sustainable technologies because there's a lot more momentum behind it. So, so yeah, I think, you know, every, every company you know, is going through sort of different phases of scaling and growth. And then whether you also, you could be a government, you could be a social venture. I use the company as my unit of analysis personally, if I'm not using the family as the unit of analysis. But, you know, especially as a leader, you can commit to one transformational activity. And the the, the leaders who spread themselves too thin, you end up not transforming anything, actually. It sounds good for years and years and years, right? But, you know, it's not, it's not the same as when Jeff Bezos said, we're going to build Amazon Web Services, right? And then, you know, that is now a gigantic business in and of its own right. But, you know, and, and Amazon has the retail part, they have that and they have everything else. But they only did one transformation at a time to sort of reach, you know, I'm using that as a reference point, you know, a, a very valuable company, Microsoft, all the other tech companies and large companies, they've all gone to different versions of one thing at a time, at scale, and that's the key abs, and that means different depending on the size of the resources you have, but at scale. I am into gaming, so I'll give you that one as kind of a personal one. And if I take a most, more recent one, just to end it out, Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard, right, for close to $70 billion. Yes, Microsoft are the makers of the Xbox, right? Sony is the makers of the PlayStation, which is probably a better console. But Sony's response is a $3 billion acquisition of another gaming company. So different scale of kind of resources. And, you know, for Microsoft, gaming is a, in the nicest way possible, a side project, right? But for Sony, this is mission critical, right? If they don't have gaming and entertainment, the other parts don't, don't form a sustainable enterprise. So just, just a more recent one, I guess that's kind of recent news, kind of better, you know, just a, a size of, you know, one transformation in a time. And yes, if you're Microsoft, you can probably handle two or three. But it's really important, I think, as if a business is measured in hundreds or thousands of people, you've got to take everyone on the journey, right? Win everyone's hearts and minds. And part of that is being a good storyteller, which you know, I started learning back in BCG over a decade ago. So what advice would you give your 21-year-old self, Michael? Well, to have a mission is great, but you tell that to the average 21-year-old, including myself, and that's not kind of probably highest on your agenda at that stage in your life um, when you're, you're more interested in discovery and kind of exploration and traveling and, you know, partying. 
I think an important one for a 21 sort of year old is define what you want to get out of your 20s is maybe a good way of framing it. And and your point kind of at the start, right? A diverse set of experiences allows you to maybe when you're approaching that 30, right, which is about a decade away, you've had enough experience to actually make a conscious choice on what you want to do. And then maybe, you know, maybe you've made a series of year, two year, five year decisions kind of leading up to that. But maybe when you're at 30, you, you have the enough information to make a decade long commitment, right? Or marriage, which for me is a lifelong commitment, right? Or to have a child, which is <laughs> lifelong, but also a multi-generational commitment, right? So, you know, you have the, the awareness, maybe the self-awareness, but also kind of just enough information to make a decision. And I often talk to our customers, actually, if I kind of bring it back to a practical business one, I say, you know, our platform does lots of different things and their feedback to me, the really good one, which I use myself, is if you can help me make one better decision, Michael, you, you know, if I've got a, a billion dollar technology budget and I'm buying your software for somewhere in the hundreds of grands, right? If you make one better decision or help me make one better decision, the cost of your platform kind of pales in comparison, if that makes sense. So, you know, I think that's a make one better decision, right? And if, you, if you've been collecting and building that experience leading up to that time, whether that's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, right? If you have the information to make one better decision or the judgment, maybe, to make one better decision, to be a more authentic leader, then, you know, I think that's really important for a 21-year-old to at least start down that journey if they haven't already. So what does the future look like for you? Going on holidays next week and I'm going to absolutely <laughs> turn off. I have appointed one of my executives to be CEO for the week, which is um, something that I had the pleasure of earlier in my career. So yeah, I'm looking forward to going to Istanbul. Fantastic. And where can people go to find out more about Orbis? We have our website. I guess that's a good place to go to, uh, to learn about lots of businesses. Actually, one thing that we use, which we're very proud of, is there's an analyst called Gartner. And they have magic quadrants and kind of lots of analysis. But they also have something called the Gartner Peer Insights, where your customers just anonymously sort of talk about your software. So we've got that Customer Choice Award five years in a row so, so far. And it's actually one of our proudest awards as a company, right? With all the other kind of things that we've been acknowledged for. But that one's one of your primary stakeholder groups, your customers saying, hey, you know, let's leave a review on kind of, you know, our experience with your platform. So you can find lots about us. You know, my LinkedIn tends to tell the story of the business a little bit as well. You know, we're, we're hiring lots of people. We have about 50 open roles right now. So we've got lots of people that we're looking to hire in our global teams across at least three countries, but sort of we're increasingly hiring more remotely. So yeah, learn more about us, you know. Send me a message on LinkedIn. You never know. You may get a response. You may even get a, hey, send me a CV. Fantastic. Michael, it's been a pleasure to meet with you. It's a great story. I wish you continued success in your endeavours with Orbus in what is undeniably a very exciting time. An awful lot of blood, sweat and tears, but nonetheless, a very exciting time. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate your time this afternoon and uh, all the very best for the future. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing and watching more about the successes that you enjoy. Great to spend the afternoon with you, Lee, and look forward maybe one day we can meet up in person and, uh, you know, have a lunch together, maybe a salad. I've learned to say a salad because it's very hard <laughs> to offend anyone if we're eating salad together. I shall look forward to it. You can be sure of that. Thanks very much. Cheers, Lee.
ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.